This is NiceAce Now, your source for real-time and on-demand professional learning designed specifically with the independent school educator in mind. A podcast of interviews, seminars, and conference talks to listen to whenever and wherever you like. Brought to you by the New York State Association of Independent Schools. I'm George Swain. In this keynote address at the Head of School Conference at the Mohawk Mountain House in November of 2016, Dr. Allie Michael of the University of Pennsylvania explains what white children need to know about race. I think you know you're working with teachers and former teachers when someone slides you a piece of candy right before you start to talk (laughs) and winks at you. (laughs) Thank you. So thank you for having me. I'm really I'm honored to be here today. And uh, I'm actually here with my kids. So you'll have a chance to see them at some point and judge my parenting, which is always <laughs> nice for everybody. Um, uh, but we're, it's really great to be here. Um, uh, I was with you this morning, and I was really struck when we were listening to Eli by this group and your incredible capacity to lean into discomfort, ask hard questions, make yourself vulnerable. I love the person who asked a question and then said, oh, I guess I messed that up. And it was like, you know, so much humility in that learning, and I think that's such an important aspect of learning to talk about identity issues. And um, I appreciate that you bring that into this room. And um, I also just appreciated how we heard voices of students who could talk about things that we as adults can't even talk about, Um, that they have great language for it, that they often know their experiences so much better than we do, and they know the words for it. And so, um, you know, I'm just holding on to that as we talk about, well, what do white children need to know about race? Um, Because we know that children often can talk about topics that we can't talk about, and race is one of those things. I want to start by telling you a story, partly because storytelling is part of building relationships around difference and sharing our experiences. Um, so I want to share a little bit of my, my experiences uh, growing up. I, I, I'm also going to be talking today about um, what white children need to know about race and how families socialize their children around race. And so I want to start by giving you one story of racial socialization, which comes from my family. So I grew up in a predominantly white family in the suburbs of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And uh, th- these are my siblings. I'm the one with the blue sweater. And in my household, we never talked about race. And I didn't know that, of course, when I was growing up. I didn't realize that that's part of what was happening. I just, um, you know, my family, we, I considered them good people. We, we um, went to church on Sundays, and we vol- did a lot of volunteer work, and um, we did study abroad. We often had students come study abroad and live in our houses. It wasn't that I was, that I was oblivious to like multiculturalism or something. Um, but we didn't talk about race, and we had um, for, like we didn't have many people of color in our community, and um, 
I didn't have any black teachers until I went to college. I didn't really, I didn't have any black classmates until I went to college. And so I basically spent my, the first 18 years of my life thinking I'm supposed to be colorblind. That's how you be good as a white person. And I believe that's what my parents would have told you also. If you had said to them, well, what do you teach your kids about race? They would have said, well, what is there to teach them? We say, treat everybody fairly and be colorblind. That's what a white child should know about race. Um, but otherwise, we, we don't talk about it. And um, it wasn't like there was a big sign that said, you cannot talk about race. It wasn't that explicit. But if you think about it, in every family, there's a short list of rules that tells you what you're allowed to talk about, and you're not allowed to talk about it. And if you talk about it, it's embarrassing, right? It's like, it's like um, you know, there's certain things I can't talk about in, in front of my parents, certain movies I might watch on my own, but I can't watch them with my parents. Race was like that kind of conversation that I felt like I wasn't allowed to have. So then I get to college. And in college, I, there, I went to a liberal arts college with some very, it was like very laissez-faire. There were very few requirements. The two main requirements for graduation were um, that you be able to swim. That was one. Uh, you pass a swim test. And the other was that you take a class on diversity. It's, you know, it has to have a little star, meaning it's a diversity course. So I signed up for a class on African-American literature, which honestly I would not have taken if it was not required. And not because I didn't want to take it or because I wasn't interested in taking it, but because I felt like that's a place I didn't belong. I felt like, well, I don't know if I'll be welcome there. I don't know if the other students will, will want me around. I don't know anything about this topic. Um, but I was interested in it. But even when I went into class the first day, I felt like um, this, isn't, this isn't a place for me. Like the professor's black, most of the, a lot, half the students are black. So um, is this really where I'm supposed to be? And um, it was required, so I stayed. And I found myself early on tripping over words and stumbling and stuttering and, and just kind of looking around and thinking, are, are they talking about me? You know, like somebody would say something about the great white savior complex, and I'd be like, I don't know what that is, but somehow I thought it applied to me, but I wasn't sure. And I constantly felt like I had a spotlight on me, and like I couldn't really see everybody else. I could just see what was going on for me, and I'd get stressed, and I'd feel like if I turned my head this way, then I would. Um, possibly reveal that I was racist, and if I turned it, it that way to look at a student who was talking, then I'd reveal that I was ignorant. It was like, I couldn't, I, I felt trapped. You know, like, how do I show that I'm not racist? And the truth is, I, you know, maybe I am. So it was like all this stuff going on for me, which made it very distracting to be engaged with the material. Um, and the, the in the class, we read a novel a week by an African-American author. And they weren't all about racism, but most of them touched on racism at some point. And somebody said to me, look, you know how to discuss books, right? So go into your class and say one thing. Every time you have class, say one thing. So what I found was I would go into class, and I would have this, I had this little t comfort zone where I was 
okay talking about race. And I would say one thing, I'd like struggle to get it out, and I'd step outside my comfort zone in doing that, and I, it would get bigger. My, my, my comfort zone got bigger when I stepped outside of it. And then I'd do it again the next class, and it got bigger again. And I just kept stepping. It was like, I'd just step over that line, and my comfort zone kept expanding until the end of the semester, when I had this much expanded capacity for talking about race, for listening, for thinking about it, and I didn't feel quite so pressured by um, that spotlight, that stereotype threat of, am I going to prove that I'm racist in this conversation? And by the end of the semester, I re realized two things. One was um, racism has a huge impact on the history of our country. And so we have to talk about it. They, we haven't undone what we started. And that, that really was cemented for me in, in living in South Africa, hearing so many South Africans in 1998 say, this happened, and this apartheid was in the past. Can't we just get over it? And I'm like, was it, it just ended four years ago. You know, <laughs> like, it's not in the past, but then I thought, well, in the US, we say the same thing. We, we constantly say, it's in the past, can't we just get over it? But we haven't fixed it yet, so we have to be able to talk about it. But the other thing I learned in that class was that I'm not very good at talking about this, but apparently, you can get better. And I hadn't realized that. In fact, at the early on in the class, I would sit there, you know, watching everybody talk, and there was this one woman in the back row, Hillary Lay, and I'd watch her. And she knew the answers to everything. She was so smart, and she knew all the history of every event that we discussed. She knew about it already, and she knew the leaders and the key actors. And I would just watch her, and she, I, I figured she must be biracial or multiracial because she like had this ability to talk about race that I thought only people of color had. So in addition to be, being pretty naive and basically being colorblind and not being able to talk about race, I thought that people of color were basically biologically predetermined to be able to talk about race, and white people were biologically predetermined to mess it all up. Um, and this was like, this was so, so clearly Hillary must be a person of color because I've never seen a white person talk about race like that. So um, I'm watching her throughout the semester. And then one day in class, she says something about, you know, as a white woman, as a white person. And I'm thinking, how is that possible? How is Hillary Lay a white person? I thought, I thought white people were not biologically able to have this conversation. And then, um, so I watched her a little bit more. Um, trying to figure out the key, like where does she come from? Who is Hillary Lay? How did she learn this? And then one day it was revealed, Hillary Lay was from San Francisco. And I, for me it was like, oh great, okay, so people of color and white people from San Francisco, of course they can talk about race, but white people from the suburbs of Pittsburgh are never going to be able to. And honestly, I don't know how long I held on to that because at the end of that I started realizing I can do this, I can get better at it. And by the end of that semester I was still not very good at it, um, but I knew I could improve. But it wasn't until, I don't know, 10 years ago when I was working with Howard Stevenson at Penn and he said, no, it's like we just need to have a growth mindset. Everybody can build the skills to talk about race. People of color are good at it because they have to do it. You know, it's like, it's like Eli talking about transgender children. They can talk about it from a young age because they have to be able to make sense of and explain their experiences to people around them. If you have to do it, you build the skills to talk about it. But you weren't born being able to talk about it. You built the skills over a lifetime. White people can also build skills for talking about race. 
but we have to make it a priority because for most white people, we don't wake up in the morning and have to deal with racism in a way that impacts our survival. And that's really the difference and that's partly why I did not grow up really having the skills to do this. So we're going to talk about, so what do white children need to know about race? What is it that they need to learn? I'm going to give you some framing concepts for thinking about that. But first I want to just share my other motivation for doing this topic. These are my kids when they were younger. They're now three and six. Um, but part of how I started looking into what do we need to teach white children about race was realizing I'm going to have some white children um, and I need to know what to tell them, what's age appropriate for a two-year-old or even a one-year-old, what, what should we be talking about as the years go on and so they continue to be a major motivator for me even though I know 15 years from now, 20 years from now when they're grown and gone, they're going to just rip apart every book I ever wrote because it's going to be out of date and I'm going to be politically incorrect and they're going to know so much more than I do. Um, in the meantime, as children, what is it that I need to teach them to enable them to critique my work one day? So um, as Matthew mentioned, I study whiteness and I, I did, I, you know, at Columbia they told me you can't do that here because it was done in the 90s. Um, we already know everything there is to know about whiteness. And I was like, if we knew everything there was to know about whiteness, wouldn't things look different in this world? Wouldn't, you know, wouldn't we be somewhere else? Um, and so I went to Penn and they said, they said, yes, we would love for you to study that. We'll support you even though we can't teach it to you. And my big concern with studying whiteness, well, first of all, I wanted to know more about myself, how I fit into the greater racial picture of the United States. Um, I, you know, I often would show up at workshops or conversations on race and feel like the best thing I could do was like nod empathetically when people of color shared their stories and feel really guilty and bad. And then maybe make other white people feel guilty and bad, you know, like, like, that's what I could do, that's what I could do for racial justice, and that was my naive understanding of, like, how this works. Um, because I didn't know, where do white people fit in? We often don't talk about white people in the conversation except overtly racist white people. And that's not how I saw myself, so then where do I fit? So. That was one reason. Another reason why I study whiteness is because um, white middle class teachers comprise over 85% of the teaching population. So when we talk about race and education, we often scrutinize the outcomes of students of color or we scrutinize communities of color as if they exist in some kind of independent bubble from everything else, not looking at the predominantly white teaching force, the predominantly white administration, predominantly white policy makers, predominantly white textbook writers. Schools of education are full of white teacher educators who teach predominantly white teachers. So if we're not looking at education holistically, at all of at the whiteness of kind of all of the basically um, bodies of implementation of education, then we're not really talking about race and education. And I wanted to round out the conversation both to see where do I fit and also, so that we, because I feel like we're not going to be able to solve a problem if we can't look at it in its entirety. 
Often whiteness is seen as invisible or normal, so it's not named. So some of you might be sitting there thinking like, this is kind of weird <laughs> to talk about whiteness. I haven't done this before. That's because whiteness is often an unnamed norm. It's an assumed identity. So in novels or in newspaper articles, we often, they often, authors often don't name the race of the person that the article is about unless they are a person of color. Or in novels, they'll give indications of, of kind of racial markers so that you can see that this is a person of color, but that's often just left out when the characters are white. Um, and so it's like this unnamed thing. Unless it's named, then you're white. Um, color blindness, which I grew up in with color muteness, the idea that we should not talk about race, um, are huge aspects of whiteness that impact how this conversation doesn't happen in schools. Um, and then, I'm gonna. I'm gonna just gonna skip that one about prior research. Um, Amanda Lewis is a sociologist who talks about race. She says she has this theory about why whiteness doesn't get talked about more in academic literature, and she says maybe it's because um, we tend to think about racial groups as connected to social problems. And like, if you're a racial group that has that has like a connection or a link with social problems, then you get talked about as a racial group, and maybe white people don't get talked about as a group because they're not often linked to social problems. And, and, and she says, and I agree, that we need to start thinking about white people as being linked to social problems. That any, social, any racial issue we have in our society implicitly involves white people, whether white people are um, damaged or oppressed or hurt by it, or are it, being benefited by it. Either way, we're part of the social, the racial problem. And so part of my reframe in, in thinking about that is that white people are part of the problem. We all necessarily are. Any racial problem in our society um, comprises all of us. And what that means then is that white people are also part of the solution. And this is one of the keys for me is realizing I am part of the problem, and that means I can and should be part of the solution, which forever I thought wasn't true. I didn't know that I had a role in fixing problems with race and education. And, um, and when we do this reframe, I think it helps us see that white people can be part of the solution. So we're going to be talking about white racial socialization today, which is essentially how families uh, socialize their children around race and racism and what it means to be white. How do families teach their children that? And the, to start, I want to just give you a, a chance to do a little bit of storytelling, to share whatever your racial background is, to share with one other person, how was race talked about in your house growing up? And what was the racial context where you grew up? You might have grown up in a place where you talked about race all the time. I imagine every person in this room has had a different experience. But what I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you four minutes, so two minutes each, to talk with one other person at your table about um, how race was talked about in your family of origin when you were growing up. So I'm going to keep sharing about uh, racial socialization. 
And um, uh, this is a, you know, the, the definition that comes from Howard Stevenson, that it is the actions parents and others take to influence racial self-efficacy beliefs or the beliefs that children hold about being able to resolve the racial stressors and conflicts in the world. And traditionally, in the racial socialization literature, uh, there were four main findings about how parents talk to their kids about race. And one was around cultural socialization, what people in our group do how you be if you're part of our group. Um, preparation for bias. So under no circumstances will you um, encounter, you know, will you have an interaction with the police. Or if somebody says this, here's how you might respond. Um, uh, be, just being prepared to encounter a world that's not completely fair. Um, a promotion of mistrust, which actually doesn't happen in a lot of families. It's less than 2% of families, but it's... Um, but it's out there. And then egalitarianism, which is that everybody should be treated equally, which is a pretty common theme. But what happened in the literature, in the research, is that they would make these giant quantitative measures and give them to people of all different racial groups. And when the measures came back from white people, the only thing that they do is teach about egalitarianism. That like the other, um, they didn't really show up on the other measures. And so for a long time, researchers said, it looks like white people don't really socialize their kids around race. And what we wanted to, as a research team, we said, that can't possibly be true. Or it ha we have to have a different measure around it. Because like in my family, we wouldn't show up on these measures as really doing anything. But the, the fact that we didn't talk about race and that I was actively socialized to be colorblind um, is a form of racial socialization. And so that's what we intended to look at with this research. And so we. Um, we interviewed families. We interviewed parents and teenagers at, in their homes, um, one after the other, and then we interviewed them together to see how they interacted around questions of race. And um, you know, it wasn't very easy to get participants because we had like, you know, we're like, so can we come to your house for three hours on a Sunday afternoon with a video camera and videotape how you talk to your children about race, you know? And surprisingly, we just we didn't have people knocking down our door to participate. So it's a pretty small sample size. We have 36 interviews, but we're using the qualitative um, information that we got from these interviews to um, design a national quantitative study that will go out to a much broader section, uh, cross-section of white people, which actually will be really powerful, especially now, because I think the ways that people talk about race, race right now, with so much overt racism in the media, might be changing. Um, we'll see. Um, but one of the things we were looking to find out is what, what are white families teaching their children about race and racism. So let me just give you, so this is not all white families. This is, these are well-educated families, um, middle-class families from outside of, they're like basically from the suburbs of Philadelphia. Most of them sent their kids to independent schools. So just to have a sense, like, you know, a lot of these families might be similar to families in, in your schools. Um, what do you think families in your schools are teaching white children about race and racism? What are some of the messages they're giving? All right, so this, you, what you are observing in terms of what your students are learning is very consistent with, what, with the stuff that we were finding in our interviews with students. So 
we found that parents would say, you know, being white is meaningless. And, and kids would say that too. Like it doesn't, you know, that doesn't really describe me. I'm a wife, I'm a mother, I'm a, um, you know, something, uh, I don't know, teacher, but I'm not, I'm not white. That, does, I, that word doesn't resonate with me. It's just, that's, you know, Caucasian, it's a label, but it's not something that describes me. I identify more as being Irish than I do with being white. So, um, and being white, it just, it doesn't have any meaning. And kids, there were a, a couple of kids who actually said, um, I'm not, I'm, you know, we said, well, so how do you identify in terms of race? And they would say, oh, I don't, I'm, I'm just normal. So um, not really, not really, you know, and I'm like, well, that's probably what I would have said if you asked me that question at 16, you know. Um, I had a similar, similar uh, background to a lot of these kids. Um, colorblindness, so you should judge others by their actions um, and and just don't see them, don't see their color, don't see their race, That don't, don't pay attention to that. A focus on values, so people spoke about a focus on values um, and it, it constantly came out um, as if they felt like, well, we don't, it's, it's not that our kids can't play with other kids of other races. It's just that we, we want our kids to be friends with and to date people who have the same values as we have. And then there was this implicit underlying assumption that people of color don't have the same values that we have. <laughs> so, um, but, but, that, but it was the values piece that differentiated um, their, the friends' choices. Uh, don't be racist, racism is wrong. Um, and, but, but with a, a framing of racism as if it's individual and overt, so police brutality is wrong. Um, you know, slavery was wrong. And these kind of overt acts of racism are wrong. But not really seeing racism as something that could be systemic um, or um, you know, subtle, from like microaggressions. Um, just as long as you're not racist, you're a-racial and you're all set. Um, we actually, we had one interview where we were with a mom and a daughter, and in the middle of the interview, the mom just said, I have, to, I just have to know, are you racist? And the daughter said, no, mom, I'm not, no, I'm not racist. And the mom was like, oh, thank God, you know? <laughs> And it, and it was like it had been building up to this moment. And the fact that her daughter was not a card-carrying member of the KKK meant she had done her job as a parent. You know, as long as the child does not self-identify as racist, we're cool. So, and that was, a, that was a pretty common sentiment. Like, we're not racist, so therefore, what else does a child need to know about race? Um, Racism is in the past. We have a black president. Racism ended when Obama was elected. Before that, it ended when we had the civil rights movement. You know, it, all, it ended when we had slavery. It's like all these points where there was no more racism, but then um, there's still, obviously there still is racism, um, but kids really felt like, no, it's, it's in the past. Um, and then there was assimilation-based integration. If, people act like us and talk like us and dress like us and walk like us, then we can be friends with them. But if they talk slightly differently or dress slightly differently or we don't approve of what their parents do or we think they have different values, then they can't be friends. So as long as they kind of do everything the way we do it, we're cool. Um, a big theme we saw was that for young children, 
families were trying to re be proactive in terms of reading multicultural literature, giving their kids images of people of color in books. And then um, for teenagers, they were just like, we wait until they ask questions and then we answer their questions. And so we would ask like, well, so when does race come up? And they're like, well, you know, when there's like a conflict at school, someone used the N-word or like somebody got shot on, and we saw it on the news. So the only time kids were talking to their parents about race was when there was a conflict at school or in the news. There were no other conversations about race. And so this is significant because then you're, you're doing two hard things. You're talking about race, which you have no practice doing, and you're talking about a conflict. Um, and that was pretty consistent across the families. And then this is, I think, really important for schools. Uh, and I don't know who made this PowerPoint, but there's an error in the bottom line. Just, I'm, it wasn't me. <laughs> Just kidding, it was me. Um, um, so just do it and don't talk about it. This was very consistent. We send our kids to racially diverse schools because that's where they're gonna make friends with people of color. They're gonna learn how to talk with kids of color. They're gonna learn all those 21st century skills of being you know, racially literate by going to school with kids of color. And I think this is so important because you all run those schools that where parents are like, well, if I just send them to school, they'll learn this stuff. And actually what we know is that if kids just show up at school together and sit, and sit next to each other, first of all, sometimes they actually, their stereotypes are heightened if, they're, if they don't have a school where they're talking about stereotypes and they're talking about biases. Um, we also know that in a lot of schools, uh, kids in color and white kids are tracked away from one another in terms of a higher level, lower level classes. Um, and so sometimes there's still, even if they're going to a racially diverse school, there's still racial segregation. Um, but the bottom line is that if they're not talking about it, integration is not it doesn't necessarily happen naturally. So our, our major conclusion was that the parents actually wanted race not to matter. That's what they said to us in their interviews. We think race shouldn't matter. And the kids thought, the kids' understanding of that was um, race doesn't matter. So do you see the difference there? The parents were acting and talking and socializing their kids around the idea that race shouldn't matter, and I agree, race shouldn't matter, but it does. And the parents knew that it did. The kids didn't know that it does. The kids were a little bit more oblivious, um, or they felt like race doesn't actually matter. And then one of the problems that um, happened in the course of this work is that we would say to kids, so why do you think that more kids are in the higher level AP, more white children are in the, your AP English class, or that your AP English class, you said you go to a racially diverse school, but the AP English class is, is almost all white, um, and that you don't have peers of color in that class. Why do you think that is? And, and they would be like, um, maybe, maybe they don't care as much about English, or maybe they're more interested in sports, or you know, maybe their parents can't help them. You know, and they, they'd like try to come up with these explanations um, that ended up putting the explanation on the child themselves instead of seeing some systemic causes. And basically what we found is like kids believe that race doesn't matter, but then when you ask them to explain a racist phenomenon, they come, they have all these kind of myths that they rely on to explain it. Why do you think, black neighborhoods, uh, why do you think that particular black neighborhood is um, 
poorer than your neighborhood and why why and you're not allowed to go there um, wh why do you think that happened they don't have they don't, can't explain it through segregation they can't explain the the laws about redlining that kept black people out of the suburbs so they say things like well, maybe they just don't work hard. You know, so when asked to explain the kind of racial landscape of our reality, they end up relying on racist explanations because they don't have an, a, a, they don't have an anti-racist analysis in their head. Um, so even though they think race doesn't matter, it's not like they're not still picking up all of these messages from our society that's kind of, they're readily available for them to use to explain things. So I want to ask you this, what is the impact on the school community of white people being socialized to be colorblind and unaware of race? If, if, mo if uh, many of your students are socialized, white students are socialized to be colorblind, and let's say a good number of your teachers are socialized to be colorblind um, and unaware of race, what is the impact on the school community? Take just another two minutes to talk to the person that you spoke to before. Thank you. Well, let me share a couple of things. Um, so we, part of the work that we did as a research team, uh, we would leave these interviews and parents would be like, so did we get it right? <laughs> or, you know, are, we, are we teaching the right thing? Like, so you mentioned that thing about what are we teaching them about being white? What are you supposed to teach them about being white? You know, and we'd say, oh, don't worry, we're gonna write something and we're gonna tell you. Unfortunately, we didn't realize that, like, you know, if you have a 14-year-old, a paper that comes out three years later is not that valuable to you, you know, because <laughs> they're 17. Um, and I, I think that was actually a big regret of our research is that we didn't tell them right away because we also did follow-up phone calls with them um, and we didn't want to like bias it but people want to know what am I supposed to be teaching my kids about race and one of the things that um, uh, that is a framing idea for us in terms of what we think parents could be doing, schools could be doing, comes from Beverly Daniel Tatum, who's the former president of Spelman College. She's a psychologist who writes extensively about racial identity development. And she says that typically in public discourse about race, there's three ways that white people participate. One is as ignorant, one is as colorblind, and the other is as racist. So given that, who wants to be white? You know, it's like, who's signing up to, to say like, oh yeah, I self-identify as a white person? Because it seems like those are the three ways to be white. And she says there needs to be a fourth way. There needs to be the possibility for white people to move into an anti-racist identity, to see how race and racism impact their lives, and to say, but I'm working to be an anti-racist white person. I'm, tr I'm trying to be an anti-racist white person. And this book that we published that Matthew mentioned um, is 15 stories of 30 white people, uh, excuse me, 15 stories of white people who've spent more than 30 years um, working for racial justice because there aren't a lot of role models of white people who worked against racism. Um, Jim Lowen also has a book called um, um, Lies My Teacher Told Me and there's a whole chapter on the history of anti-racism anti that also has models but there aren't a ton of models for white people to look at and say like well what does that look like to be an anti-racist white person and so then as a team we, we, we asked well what could white racial socialization be 
And the reason why we wanted it to not just be guiding principles, but it, it also knowledge and skills, because anti-racism isn't just something that lives in your head, it's about taking action. And um, so what, could, what are possibilities for white racial socialization? One is to say talking about race is not racist. Um, race has a huge impact on our lives, and, and not just in negative ways. There's like ways that it informs our identities and um, our communities and our culture. And so race is not, it's not only bad. Um, and, and we can talk about it, um, we can talk about it when there's not conflict. Uh, sometimes you, you, if you mention race, kids will say, that's racist. Or, you know, I've been in faculty meetings where somebody will say, like, we said we'd have a, a person of color for this search, and um, we actually only have three white candidates, so we need to look at that. And somebody will say, are you calling me racist? And it's like, no, I'm not calling you racist, and it's not racist to bring it up. Sometimes there's race talk that perpetuates racism, and there's race talk that mitigates racism, and we need to learn the difference. And then there's just race talk about how it impacts our lives, and it's not, ra it's not racist. Um, Race should also not only come up at times of conflict. There are lots of there could be lots of opportunities to talk about it, to teach kids about it, to talk about it with one another. Um, and again, talking about it when there's not conflict means we're only doing one hard thing, and it also means we're building skills and practicing for when we're um, talking about race in times of conflict. Race and racial differences do matter. They're not all bad. Difference is good. And I think really emphasizing with children that difference is good, uniqueness is good, is an, is an important thing, because they have such a drive to be the same, um, and yet we have, they need to learn to value differences. Um, racism negatively impacts everyone. I think this sometimes gets lost. So people will say, well, who am I, as a white person, to, to counter a, a racist comment? You know, if, like, what am I gonna say? You might offend this person over here, if, you know, like, what, don't tell that joke, you might offend her. And I think it's important to get to the point where you can say, actually, I'm offended by, by racism. Because it, the, the assumption that I would think that was funny really undermines me. Or you know, I think it undermines all of us. Those kinds of comments undermine all of us. And so anti-racist action is not something you do on the behalf of somebody. You do it because racism really makes all of us less whole. And then being white may not have meaning for you, but that doesn't mean it doesn't have meaning. So in your experience, you can't see the ways that it might have meaning, and yet it might have had a huge impact. It likely had a huge impact on your life. Some content knowledge includes an understanding of systemic racism and seeing how our communities and our schools even have been shaped by racist policies in the past. I grew up in an all-white community, not, not all-white, it was 99.8% white, 10 miles away from a community that was basically 99% black, and we, and we really didn't mix with each other. And for the longest time, I thought I lived in an integrated community because we had four people of color in my community and they went to school with us and we weren't mean to them you know so we were integrated and i didn't see that actually that was like that was a story of segregation and um, there were policies that made my school district all white there were policies just a year before i i was born there was a supreme court case millican versus bradley that said um, you don't have to share funding in metro areas between the cities and the suburbs and that meant that the suburbs could continue to you know use all of their real their real estate taxes for 
maintaining suburban education and municipal systems. And so, and I didn't realize that, that like those kinds of policies, along with individual acts of violence, maintained a white community that was safe and pretty and had a blue ribbon school for me to grow up in. That's the kind of systemic racism that helps you understand your racial reality um, if you know the history. And if you don't know the racial history, you just think, well, I don't know, I think our community is all white and we have a really good school because we, you know, we care about education. We're good people who care about education and we believe in paying high taxes so that we can go to this expensive school. And that was the narrative in my community. And I didn't see, I didn't see the systemic racism that shaped our community. Narratives, facts, analyses which help counter inaccurate beliefs about racism, counter stories to the ones that they get in the, in the news. Um, whiteness should not be the invisible norm. And then positive ways to be white, including history of white anti-racist activism. And then I think what's missing here that somebody said is like actual history, which I think is related to an understanding of systemic racism. And then skills. So recognition skills, being able to see it, being able to understand what's happening when you see it. Role-playing responses. Um, Sometimes my child, my daughter will tell me about conflicts that happen in school and, um, and I'll say, well, what would you say to that? Well, I'll play that child and you play the other child. We often do it about gender because often kids will say things like, you know, girls can't, um, in, in, when she was in preschool, it was like, girls can't wear blue, you know, and it's like, okay, so let's say that Nathaniel says that to you. I'll say, I'll say that, and then you tell me what you would say, and then we role play it and, uh, and practice it, because these conversations can be hard. And then doing media analysis. This is part of systemic, an understanding of systemic racism. When you're able to analyze the media that you're taking in, then you're able um, to say, like, actually, somebody made a choice to put that image in my brain, and I'm going to make a choice not to adopt it. So I did this all, a lot with my child. She was a very gender-conforming child. She still is. She's moving out of out of it a little more as a six-year-old, but it's funny because when she was little, we always dressed her in like browns and blacks and blues and tried not to like make her very like stereotypically girly. And as soon as she had any say, she was like, I'm a girl, I'm a princess, I'm gonna wear a dress, I'm gonna wear ruffles, I'm gonna wear pink. And, and there was a, 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 some time when I was a little bit like, but if you wanted to be transgender, we'd be, we'd be okay with that, you know? <laughs> She's like, no, that's not who I am. And I realized, like, this is her gender identity. She is, like, far on the end of the spectrum of, like, girliness. And, and that's how she, she expresses herself, so I have to support that. So she was obsessed with Disney princesses. We were always talking about Disney princesses. And so I, I would say, like, but do, do Disney princesses, like, you know, and, and I, I think this is, when you do this, you have to be um, careful not to shame kids. She loves them. She loves Disney princesses more than life itself. So I can't shame, I can't like ridicule them or just criticize them outright because then, she, you know, I have to appreciate them because, you know, there's something that's important to her. And, and then so she can be, you know, and then I'll say, well, so, but, like, why are so many of the Disney princesses white? Why do they have white skin? Like, could Cinderella be brown? Or, you know, why do they always have to marry a white prince? Like, could the prince be black? Would that be okay if you had a white princess and a black prince? And she's like, yeah, we could do that. And then, or I'll say, like, well, why does it have to be a prince? Couldn't it be, it couldn't it be a princess? Couldn't you marry another princess? Or, you know, like, what happened? Why don't we have any princesses who end up on their own and just, like, you know, don't have a romantic relationship? So we, like, go on and on and on. 
But you know, so, and I feel like I'm annoying her. <laughs> but you know what? She actually took it another way. Like, it wasn't like you're ruining it. So she started at four drawing these pictures where she would just like make her princesses brown, you know? And she would do this where she would have a, a prince that was black and she would take these people that she held sacred as like, you know, the best people in the world. And she'd say, you know, they don't have to be white. Like, this is still a great story, you know? And I think what was powerful was that she was able to make that cognitive switch that we have control over this. This is like not a message we just have to absorb. Um, and she continues to play with them. I mean, it, you know, it gets more complicated as she gets older. Um, and, um, but, but I think that, you know, I, I share this picture to just kind of say, like, this is part of what it can look like to support kids to just challenge the media that they're taking in. And, and to think, like, somebody made a choice about this, and we could make a different choice. Um, and then finally, in terms of skills, being a friend, not a bystander. So if someone's being bullied or misunderstood, that you can just step in and connect to that person, that connecting to that person can often do as much as or more than standing up to a bully. So this is a quote that is not the same as Eli's quote this morning, but I don't know if it's a psychology thing where this comes from, but what they say is racial socialization is not what we do once a year. It's what we do consistently, persistently, and in an enduring fashion. So we heard that again as like the diagnosis for if you're actually transgender, you have to express it consistently and persistently. But racial socialization is not like I read one book to her when she was five, or even I read seven multicultural books and took her to an event. It's like, how do we talk about race with kids day in and day out, every day of their lives? That's racial socialization. How do we not talk about it? and not see it and not pay attention to it every day of their lives. That's also racial socialization. So the colorblindness when that's happening, it's, it's what we're doing consistently and persistently. And often we think in schools, I did that chapter, I did that unit, I read that book. And it's like, no, this is, this is much bigger than that. It's about a daily, um, it's about a daily practice. So I want to give you one framing, a couple framing concepts for thinking about this with kids, that the goal, it, the goal for me in terms of how we talk to kids about, white children about race, is to support them to build a positive racial identity. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that, but just off the bat, what do you think it means? Some people will say, like, how can you have a positive racial identity if you're white? What do you think it means for a white person to have a positive racial identity? That's a really good point. So having an understanding of our racial ethnic backgrounds and how whiteness has impacted our lives and our ancestors. So I have a different experience because I grew up in a pretty wa with a pretty waspy background. Um, all of my ancestors are, are, not all, but like for many generations back, my ancestors are white Anglo-Saxon Protestants and then as a, 25-year-old, um, 28-year-old, I converted to Judaism. My partner is a rabbi, and so, but, but still, like my experience of race as a white person and my racial identity development as a child was informed by Protestantism and and like this having this kind of British ancestry or like colonial American ancestry and. Um, and that, so we have different experiences of being white. And, and so part of our work is to understand for each of us, what does it mean for me, you know, what, what has being white meant to me in my life and, and for my ancestors? And you might have ancestors who lived in the US before World War II who didn't see, who weren't 
considered white and you know and then that that there was for most Jew for most like European descended Jews there was a transition in like the 1950s and 60s but understanding that is I think part of building a positive racial identity and so how has Im whiteness impacted me with the knowledge that it's not going to be the same as all white people it's just like like not all black people have had the same experience and there are lots of different differences in any racial group yes yes okay did okay so let me keep going here here, um, because I want to share a couple of things. Um, just the reason why we want to focus on racial identity is because um, positive racial identity has been connected with school, with success in school, both behaviorally and academically. And so it's a general vision I have for all schools to orient race work around racial identity development and to say, the reason we do this is because it's good for students. It's good for their development. That racial identity, just like we consider all other aspects of their um, you know, experiences in their gender development, their child development, their academic development. Racial identity development is part of who they are. What we know is when you go through the stages of racial identity development, the early stages of like acknowledging that racism exists and that it has an impact on your life often happen for children of color when they're like four or five. So they're very aware race matters at a young age. For white people, it often happens in college, in your first job. Sometimes you never quite get there where you realize what an impact race has on your life. Um, but overall, focusing on racial identity is a way to see this as integral to our work as teachers. And then a teacher's racial identity is their toolbox. So as a teacher, I can, it's going to be very hard for me to support the racial identity development of any student if I haven't been through something that they're going through. If I've never really been through the stages of identity development, then um, I'm going to have a hard time supporting students in it. And so part of what I'm going to be talking about tomorrow is what is racial identity development? What is some of the theory for white people and for people of color? Um, how do teachers strengthen their racial identity so that they can support students in developing their racial identity? So this is a preview for tomorrow. And um, I also just want to share some strategies for adults for building a positive racial identity. So um, acknowledging what we don't know about race and racism. Maybe we don't even know what we don't know, but acknowledging that there are things we don't know and establishing a learning stance, being open to hearing the experience of students and teachers of color, practicing talking about race in small groups, inquiry groups. So um, what, one of the books that is on for sale here, which is actually the only book I, that I authored by myself, the other ones are edited, um, is called called Raising Race Questions, and it's about using inquiry to support um, small group work, thinking about race and racism, and really figuring out what we need to learn. That's the kind of thing that would be great for people from this group to go away saying, I'm going to work with four other heads of school, or even one other heads of school, to do some inquiry about race, to give yourself the space to think and talk about it, to develop your own racial identity, but with colleagues where you don't have to be pretending that you know. Because I think that's one of the big things that stops us in our learning, is feeling like we have to have all the answers. And it's very hard as the head of school not to feel like you have to already have it all figured out. Um, so giving yourself a chance to practice, talking with students, and really believing them. Sometimes when a student's experience is so far from our own, it's hard to believe 
what they're going through. Um, and then that shuts them down. They don't want to share with us if we're not going to believe them. Um, talking with colleagues, workshops like this, books, um, affinity spaces, and then overall a growth mindset. Really believing, I can get better at this. When we have a fixed mindset about race and racism, we say, you know, oh, that's not something white people can do, like I was doing in college. You know, white, only Hillary Lay can do that, but nobody else. Um, or um, we feel like, you know, you're either racist or you're not. And so we spend all of our time running to prove, I'm not a racist, I'm not a racist, I'm not a racist. Because if I make one mistake, then I'm a racist, and then it's over. And so in general in our schools, these conversations are not going to happen unless we can have a growth mindset that says, if I make a mistake, it doesn't mean I'm a racist. It means I made a mistake. But if I don't try and make mistakes, I'm not going to learn. I'm not going to get better. So supporting people to, um, to see everything that they do, everything that they say as a draft. If I don't make the messy draft the first time, then I'm not going to um, have anything to improve upon the next time. A couple more strategies, learning about the history of whiteness learning about your personal history, how your, benef your family has benefited by being white. And it's interesting because some people say, you know, look, I, I didn't grow up wealthy. I, I didn't grow up in an educated family. I don't understand how we would have identified, how we would have benefited from being white. And I think what's important is just to, you know, like you said, there are different experiences of whiteness. And if you grew up um, in a low-income family, um, one question to ask is, so what if I grew up in a low-income family that was not white? Like, what if I grew up in the same family in the same place, but we weren't white? What would our lives have been like? So it doesn't mean that being white means everybody was rich, everybody had grandparents who could pay for them to go to college, everybody had whatever. But it might have meant you could live in places that people of color couldn't live, or you could, act, you could have citizenship to the US that people from countries of people of color couldn't have citizenship. Um, it, like there were, there were actually were 150 years in our country's history when people who were not white couldn't immigrate, couldn't, couldn't naturalize. Um, it could be um, that the schools that you had access to, or maybe your father or grandfather or, or mother or grandmother had access to a labor union that was closed to people of color. So just kind of trying to figure that out, how whiteness has impacted you, with the awareness that it won't be the same as for all white people. Um, receiving feedback non-defensively, like, oh, you got a little thing stuck in your teeth. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for pointing that out. Is there anything else? You know, rather than like you know shutting it down. I'm not. Yeah, I don't want to hear that. Like I'm. I'm liberal. I'm good. There's no reason. There's no way I. I could be doing something wrong. Um, taking responsibility for your own learning, and then of course finding finding role models in doing this. Um, we'll talk about this a little bit more tomorrow too. That. Um, for me, the pursuit of wholeness is the goal. In talking about race with kids, with each other, in our schools, I believe that racism has a fracturing effect on us as individuals, on our ability to form relationships across race, on our classrooms. And, and so, you know, my goal is to, to kind of reach towards a wholeness that would be there if it weren't for racism. And I realize that's kind of pie in the sky. Eli talked about his friends who are kind of like, you know, more soft in their language. That's, that's, that's me. Like, I know that wholeness is a very abstract thing. It's hard to get to. But a lot of the time, kids and adults think the only reason to talk about race is to produce sadness, guilt, anger, and fear. 
because that's what happens when they do it. And so I want to just put out there that I don't think that's the point. I know that that's a part of the process that happens for people when we talk about this subject. But for me, the point is to get to a place of wholeness for individuals to show up as their full selves, for all of us to be able to show up and to be healthy members of a multiracial community. And it's very hard to do that um, if we're not willing and able to talk about race. And along the way, we might fear, feel fear, sadness, anger, guilt. But if we know that that's not the point, then maybe it will be more worth it to get to a place of wholeness. So I have a couple resources to share. My books are up there, two of them. Um, but then the, these are the best books that I have seen recently. So they're all from the last year or two. Um, Chris Emden book, uh, Chris Emden's at um, Columbia, he wrote Why White, For White Folks Who Teach in the Hood and the rest of y'all too. I didn't want to read this book because I'm like, I don't teach in the hood. I wouldn't say I taught in the hood even if I did. I wouldn't use that language. You know, it just didn't seem li like it applied to me. This, is, this book is for any teacher who teaches children for whom the American educational system was not structured around their needs. Okay, and it's fabulous. It has so many practical strategies. I recommend it for anybody. Um, Despite the Best Intentions by Amanda Lewis and John Diamond. They're both sociologists. And basically what they're saying is we have to understand how race impacts our schools in part because nobody is trying to mess this up. We're all trying to get it right, and we're still messing it up. And they have so many um, explanations uh, about like uh, the larger structure of race and racism that impacts our schools, and it's so applicable and very readable. And then this book by Dorothy Steele, who's actually Claude Steele's wife. Claude Steele wrote the book um, Whistling Vivaldi, which is all about stereotype threat. This is about creating identity-safe classrooms, um, not just about race. It's also around gender and sexuality. Um, um, but it's about like, so understanding that stereotype threat exists, what do we do about it? And I might say more about stereotype threat tomorrow. So I want to name um, this, one of the things that I do is I, I am the dire director of an organization called the Race Institute for K-12 Educators. And we do three-day workshops for teachers to do the personal and long-term growth of identity development that's hard to do in like a two-hour session or, you know, when your boss is watching, which is like often the context that I'm in. And so we are doing a Heads of School Institute in 2018, the summer of 2018. We don't have dates yet, but if you're interested in being on the mailing list, you can go to raceinstitute.org and um, sign up and then you'll get information about it. We did a Race Institute last year in March. Margaret Havland, who's the um, assistant head of school at Westtown School, said you need one just for heads. And so it's in the works. And I don't know where it's going to be. And then also feel free to contact me. A negative white racial identity is not about feeling bad about being white or being like um, even stigmatized for being white. It's almost the, the way that it shows up in psychology is almost like in photography that a negative racial identity is the absence of a racial identity. It's a lack of awareness or consciousness of what it means to be white, that being white has any impact on your life. No knowledge that being white impacts your life. And, and then what happens, what they say in psychology, is that 
because you have no awareness of the way that whiteness impacts your life, you have an identity that's based on falsehoods, that you, that you believe stereotypes, that you, you have never like taken the, you've never gone through the process of analyzing stereotypes um, or like um, myths, racial myths, and so you just think that they're true. And so you believe, you believe them. And so it's a delusional identity, they say, um, because it's not based in reality. It has no, there's no consciousness of whiteness or of race. Whereas a positive racial identity is what many of you were saying. It is the awareness, the conscious awareness that being white impacts your life. That it has to in a society that has historically distributed resources and opportunities based on uh, skin color, then you, being white is going to impact your life. So how does it impact my life? And, be, and having a positive racial identity means you see that and you feel like there's still things you can do to pr be proactive of, about working against racism, you, even using your privilege or your status to work against racism. And so um, having a positive racial identity is not synonymous with feeling good about being white. That's like a, a common misconception is that then you feel good about being white. It's not that. It's about a conscious awareness of whiteness. A negative racial identity is not about feeling bad about being white. It's about having no awareness of whiteness. When you feel really badly for being white and you feel guilty and you feel embarrassed, that's in between the two. Because part of going from having no awareness of whiteness to being able to consciously use your whiteness to work against racism is like figuring all this stuff out and learning about it and learning the history. And sometimes that doesn't feel good. And sometimes there's guilt and embarrassment. That's, yeah, that's where I was for about six years. Um, and still sometimes am. Thank you for listening to this Nice Ace Now podcast. Production support comes from Andrew Cook. Interview and conference support by Judith Sheridan and Barbara Swanson. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. For additional podcasts, as well as information about our conferences and other programming, please visit our website, nysais.org.